So in different ways, I think both Jill and I have been um, kind of touching on on what we might look at as lying at the heart of the human condition or the human uh, predicament, perhaps we could say, is is a question there of where might we actually look for um, some kind of real, lasting, kind of abiding kind of happiness or when I call it peace or ease or okayness, but something that um, maybe goes beyond just the transient good times that we have it in life and that that is somewhat unassailable by the changing conditions. And, and I think in these talks and in what we're offering at a retreat like this, it, it, off, it comes down to an exploration of this question, where do we actually look for that kind of happiness, a more um, unassailable kind of happiness or ease or peace? And I think the desire to be at ease, to be happy, whatever words we might use, that this is something, this really is something that we share with all beings, all human beings, all other beings. And there's something inherently good and lovable about that movement towards happiness. And we can use this as a doorway into connecting with others in our wishes for their well-being and their freedom from suffering in these Brahma-vihara kinds of meditations that we do, and uh, like the metta that I started uh, offering yesterday, where we connecting with this um, universal wish and help open the doorway into that, that sense of uh, goodwill. And so in the search for happiness, for well-being, for ease in our lives, we often have the approach of trying to get the conditions in our life to line up with some idea that we have about how to how to attain that. What's been held out there, pointed at as the, the key to that. And it's usually things like finding the right job and the, or the right partner or the right place to live. Having... Um, these things in our lives that that we've been that are that are widely held as the keys to happiness or success, a combination of those, and we may we may achieve some of this. Maybe we can achieve. Maybe we're fortunate enough that a lot of it, and and these are good things to consider. These are not um, these are not trivial concerns. This is real stuff, and having meaningful work that we enjoy and have some skill at is a huge blessing. Having people in our lives to share the good times and the bad times and these other kinds of things. These are are worthy aims. There are many occasions in the texts that we draw on from the old Pali canon where the Buddha spoke of the kinds of happiness that one can have and enjoy and benefit from on those what we could call the mundane or worldly level. And there's one uh, place where he's speaking to his his kind of chief or foremost lay disciple, and wasn't a monk or a nun, this man, Anattapindaka, who was a great supporter of the Buddhas and um, you know, was a wealthy merchant and provided a lot of support for the Buddha and his followers. So he was speaking to him and he said, Householder, it's a way... They tended to address lay people. 
in these teachings. Householder, there are these four kinds of happiness that may be achieved by a lay person who enjoys sensual pleasures depending on time and occasion. Which four? The happiness of ownership and possession, the happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of freedom from debt, and the happiness of blamelessness. Well, he pointed to just he pointed to four things here. He could have elaborated it, and in other places there might be a slightly different list. But these four kinds of happiness, and he went on to describe um, these how one might um, the, how one how these these might manifest in one's life. And what householder is the happiness of ownership? Here one has acquired wealth by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of one's arms, earned by the sweat of one's brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained. When one thinks, I have acquired wealth by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of my own arms, earned by the sweat of my brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained, one experiences happiness and joy. This is called the happiness of ownership. So in here, the word wealth points to, um, you know, stuff, material possessions and gains. And it, and it might not occur to us to, to think in this way. We might think, well, how does that jibe with, with these teachings, you know? It doesn't sound, seem like something we would expect the Buddha to suggest, that we actually bring our possessions and the things, the good things in our life and the hard work we've done and the happiness that comes <laughs> from these things the satisfaction that we might get from seeing the fruits of our labors and the good things that we enjoy as a result of that. And he speaks of the happiness of enjoyment in the same way, bringing to mind that which we enjoy, the simple pleasures that come our way. And and it's really it's important and skillful to reflect in this way. So Jill touched on this uh, in her beautiful talk on... Um, generosity and gratitude last night, that counting one's blessings in this way really turns the mind towards this beautiful, skillful, wholesome mind state of gratitude. And so getting and having happiness on this level is is a good thing. It's not a problem. But it's important to bear in mind the limitations and the fundamental fragility that's inherent in these kinds of worldly happinesses. Because no matter what, at some point, they will be affected by, touched by, and we will be faced with the inevitable truth of change. Things don't last, and they fall apart, and we might lose our job, conditions change, we or someone we love get sick and and even if those kinds of things don't happen there are the daily concerns and worries the stresses and struggles of meeting our obligations and responsibilities and these things that that come to all of us and sometimes really bad things ha- you know deep suffering can come our way and even if things stay really pretty stable in our lives at some point we're all going to face the inevitability of aging, probably sickness in some form, and eventually death. That's the trajectory of a life. If we take birth, that's the direction we're going. And that's not as, we can't escape that. 
And that's not wrong or a mistake or a bad thing. And it was actually confronting these basic truths of existence, of birth, aging, sickness, and death, was confronting these, they, they are spoken about as heavenly messengers, and they're what propelled the Buddha onto his, his quest for understanding. If we're just going to get old, sick, and die, what's the point? What's, what's the meaning of life, if this, given this truth? So, so what do we do then? How do we navigate the fragility, the uncertainty of life, deal with this truth of change and unpredictability because unless we have some magic way of getting control and putting a stop to it, it's going to be there. And this practice isn't going to give us that control. It's not what it's about. How do we uh, deal with this, the, the fragility that's inherent in these worldly kinds of happiness. <clears throat> There's an image that's used often in, in this tradition and in other traditions of seeing what we might call a spiritual life as a, a journey, as walking a, a road or a path. And Jill uh, used an image of setting out on a voyage, like a, a voyage, like a sea voyage. Similar kind of image of traveling. And sometimes um, in this tradition and in, and in others, I think there's this sense of, of a journey to our, our real or true home. Finding a, a real home or a true home or a, a good home. And in my mind, when I have the connotations of, of reaching a home, of finding a home, there's, there's this sense of relaxation and rest where the body and the heart and the mind, you go in the door and you can relax, really relax. Put a lot of things down. And so this voyage or walking this path, I could see that as um, this journey to the deepest possible kind of ease or relaxation or maybe we'd call it freedom or peace. And and using this kind of image I think can be helpful and, and maybe uh, something that we can um, use in a useful way as long as we don't hold the image too literally because it's not that we're going somewhere other than where we are right now. And it's not that we're getting something we don't have. We end up where we started, but our understanding is what changes. That's where the transformation happens. A beautiful expression of this in a few lines here from a poem by T.S. Eliot. This is from a part of the four quartets called Little Gidding. It's just a short excerpt. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. So in one way, nothing changes. 
the world of change and unpredictability is still there. But everything is also radically transformed, transformed by the power of insight and this deep seeing into the truth of the way things really are. So I want to talk about one way that I think is really useful to you know, look at this this journey of transformation. And this goes to the, the core teaching that's in all all of the different traditions that now ex- that ex- have developed over the centuries in in the broader sense of what we what gets called buddhism nowadays and all the different uh, ways that that shows up in the world and beneath all of the different cultural layerings and and the changes that have come through through this uh, journey across time and space over more than 2500 years now at the core of all of it is the teaching of what's called the Four Noble Truths, the truth of um, suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the relinquishment or cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering. And so this this um, teaching, the, the Fourth Noble Truth, is the path that leads to the development and understanding of, of the, the first three. So it's a circular kind of, um, and there's a way there's a circularity, a, a cycling through with these. And so this, the Eightfold Path, which is, is as the fourth of these noble truths, is the path leading, the path one develops to lead to the end of suffering. It offers us a set of practices to understand the nature of suffering, the first noble truth, to understand its cause, to abandon that cause, and through this process to realize freedom. So this can sound like, oh no, I've got to try to remember this and another list, and I've got to memorize it and be able to say it back to somebody if I'm a good Buddhist or something like that, and and it's important to to see that it's actually a description of of what just happens as we engage with the practice. We don't have to take this on as something we now have to do in any way. If we bring mindful awareness to our life in a real and and you know in a deep way, then then we are fulfilling the path factors and it is it, it does us. We don't do it. But it's a framework that we can use to kind of understand what's what we're up what we're up to here. So I'll offer some reflections on this that I hope some aspect of this may prove useful in some way. And and you know there's these eight things. I'll list them out a bit. And and it's not it sounds like, you know, a path. So you take first one step and the next one, and that there's some linear progression here. And and a more useful way of thinking of it is that it's interwoven strands of a rope or cable that create something uh, complete by interweaving and supporting each strand, supporting the other to create something more than each one of them. So it's not a, a step that we take one step after another. But I do want to touch on these path factors, and I'll try to keep it um, you know, in a, in a realm that's real and somewhat accessible. 
So these eight things, these eight steps, eight strands of the, this cable in terms of the Eightfold Path are usually, they're divided into three groups. The first one, in the usual way it's listed, the classical way it's listed, is called the wisdom group, and it has two things, two factors, right or wise view and a right or wise intention. Some people translate it as right, some as wise. The word is samma in Pali. And you could say that these address a certain kind of orientation of our mind. And so we could think of, of wise view in all kinds of ways. And there, the Buddha talked about this in many ways. Understanding the law of karma is said to be an aspect of right view. Understanding that our actions, intentional actions, are are uh, informed by the motivations that give rise to them and that they bear fruit in a lawful way. And uh, I'm not going to go into that, but having a real understanding of that is said to be an aspect of right view. And there's many other. There's a, a teaching where I think at least 16 examples of what is wise or right view. But one, I think, useful and, and um, powerful aspect of it is follows on from what I spoke about in my last talk in terms of understanding uh, the noble truth of dukkha, having a wise relationship to what's called dukkha. And this is really the start of the path, this opening to this um, inherently fragile, unreliable, and um, and because of this, this basic kind of unsatisfactoriness that pervades all of life, even those things that we find pleasant and enjoyable. And, and it's born simply of the fact that things are subject to change. And the good times, the pleasant experiences don't last. They fall away, they change, they shift. And, and it's all largely out of our control. We can't, we don't have ultimate control. It's not amenable to our will. We do our best to live a life of integrity and to steer the course of things. But we can't control it. We can't get it to the way we want and get that to stay that way. We don't have that kind of control. And so opening to this understanding in a wise and skillful way is the start of the path because we, until we bring some understanding of this, we're always going to be turning to that which in its basic nature is, is is incapable of, of providing a source of this kind of lasting happiness or peace. It's not unassailable. It's too subject to the, the winds of change that are blowing through our life all the time. So if we see that there's a problem here, then it can lead us to actually seeking something to do. We seek a reliable path, you could say. Something that would lead to this deeper kind of peace, a peace that is not dependent on conditions so much, doesn't ask that things be a certain way. I think maybe both of us have quoted the teacher Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master from the last century. I have another quotation from him here. In Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence, 
But as soon as we open to and experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we actually allow ourselves to face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we are trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. So this is a, a different kind of strategy than we may be used to applying and that mostly is is there in the world. Because mostly what we do is we struggle and fight against this noble truth. And the suggestion here is that rather than getting into struggle, fighting against the truth of the way things are in this regard, by either trying to control things so that they are always the way we want them to be and somehow stay that way, or or falling into despair because the road seems to be blocked, if we open to the truth of things, our situation here, and let go of fighting against this, then we'll look for another way. And I would say that there's some aspect of this that's present for all of us who would choose to spend time on a retreat like this. We're looking for a different way, a different view, a different orientation, a different perspective. <clears throat> and so, if we bring the understanding that, that suffering in our lives is in great part has to do with how we're relating to this truth of change and unreliability and uncontrollability, that that's where we have some room to maneuver. That's where we have some possibility to to really find real change, transformation. This this is a, a key aspect of what we call wise or right view. We change the way we look at it. This brings the next factor of right intention into play, which you could say is is the energy or factor in the mind that leaks, links this understanding, this shift of view or orientation, links that with actions we might take. So it's this seeking of a pathway around the road that's blocked in that image from Ajahn Chah. So we engage with something. We set out on the journey, you could say. And so these two, the level of our view and our intention, then leads to the next factors in the path, which are um, um, have to do with how we live in the world, our behavior. This is called the, um, the second section is called the, the sila section. So the first one, wisdom, panya, sila, ethical conduct. This is, has to do with how we live our lives, and we've spoken about this in, a lot. Uh, it's the it's right speech, right action, right livelihood, and you could say this is just about fundamentally about creating harmony in our lives in the world by not intentionally adding to the suffering in the world either by the work we do through our speech through the things we do through our actions, so we engage with the precepts, for example. And, and Jill spoke about this as an act of generosity, a gift to ourselves and to the world. And this leads to the, the next section of this Eightfold Path, which is called the concentration group, or the bhavana. Bhavana means mental cultivation or mind development. And this has three factors of 
right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. There's an interesting um, illustration in one of the texts um, that shows how these three um, inter interweave and support one another, and it's an image of of three kids who go children who go to a park to play, and they see some uh, flowering branches in a in a tree, and they want to pick the flowers, but they can't reach them, and so uh, not even the tallest of them can get to them. So um, so one one of the kids bends down and makes a, a kind of platform, a table, hands and knees with their back, and one of them can climb up and um, get taller. But it's not; they're not stable. They're afraid. So they the other one comes and offers a shoulder, and and provides stability so that they can reach up and gather the flowers. And uh, it's said that in this image, the tall child who actually gets up and picks the flowers, is um, concentration and the function of unifying the mind, gathering the mind together, gathering uh, the mind that tends to distraction into non-distraction, you could say, but needs two kinds of support. The support of effort or energy, which is like the the child that offers a back, a platform to stand on, and a stabilizing awareness of mindfulness, which is like the shoulder to brace against there. And so these three um, factors of effort or energy, of mindfulness and of concentration, work together. And over time and with um, persistent gentle effort, they begin to create a certain uh, level of tranquility and stability non-distraction, the word we've been using in the mind. And this allows the the awareness to, um, you could say, rest a little more firmly, with more stability on our experience. We show up for our life rather than skipping along on the surface of it. And we can rest there long enough to drop below the surface to the level of, of insight One way this happens is that we start to see how our inner world functions, what's going actually going on in there, rather than just being led around by the habits and patterns that have been established over time there, and the conditioning there. We start to see what's going on, and as we see into this, not through analyzing it and making some decision, but directly seeing it, there's a process of unbinding, relaxing that happens, starts to happen by itself. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we see how suffering is created in the mind, and through seeing that, we naturally let it go. And through this process, we also start to touch the possibility that the path might lead to a true and deep and abiding kind of peace well, we could say complete freedom from suffering. We've used the word nibbana, which is used throughout these texts. And we could call this the fruit of the Buddha's awakening. There's a really simple definition from one of the texts of what, you know, this word probably doesn't have much real meaning. Or awakening or enlightenment or nibbana, what's that? 
the simple definition, the extinction of greed, extinction of hatred, extinction of delusion. This I call Nibbana, the words of the Buddha. So, in other words, if these energies are no longer holding sway over the mind, are no longer in charge of the mind, then then there's this uh, deep abiding kind of peace. And, you know, what would it be like if these energies didn't arise, weren't in the mind stream? There's, I don't know if I mentioned in the, here at this retreat or I talk about this old monk that my friends and I used to visit in the upper part of Burma. And um, in, in, in that country, the word Sayadaw means teacher in the same way that Ajahn means teacher in, in the Thai, Thai language and Thai tradition. So Ajahn Cha means teacher and Sayadaw means teacher in Burmese. And so my friends, this was... Um, nicknamed this monk the Happy Sayadaw. And he died a couple of years ago at the age of 99. And uh, at, at that time, at the time of his death, he had been in ro- robes for, I believe, 87 years. And because uh, he started as a novice. And um, he was the happiest being I've ever met. He was so light by the time he you know, got up into his 90s, he was just skin and bones. And he was so, he just, you'd go see him and he'd throw his arms up and he'd be laughing a lot. And he was, um, he was so light, but he was not a light weight. He was the real deal. He was a real yogi. And he had been a teacher of some very well-known teachers. And, you know, he was, he was the real thing. And one of my friends once asked him, why he was so happy. And he said, I have no ill will. I have no ill will towards you or you or anybody anywhere. <laughs> and he, he was pointing to this possibility. It just didn't, it wasn't there. did not arise. Or what, maybe they might arise, but what if they were completely powerless. These are some words from a, a nun in Thailand who died in, I think, in the 1970s. Her name was Mei Chi Kao. And there's a beautiful little book that's uh, you know, the story of her life. These are her words. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known, earth, water, fire, and wind, body, feeling, memory, thought, consciousness, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, emotions, anger, greed, and delusion, all are known. That's a pretty complete list. That sounds like pretty much everything we see in a day of meditation. All are known. I know them as they all exist in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. 
So a, a different way of, of looking at this possibility. Maybe they're, they don't arise. Maybe they arise, but they are powerless. They don't, they, the mind is not moved by their presence. We've been using and we use uh, often the teachings, this word Nibbana is used. And, and the word literally means something like to cease blowing or to go out. There was a colloquial use of it that meant to, to cool down, you know, let the soup Nibbana. So you could say realizing Nibbana is getting really cooled out. But that's sometimes it's likened an image uh, is used of a fire that goes out when its fuel is exhausted. And so you could say when we don't feed the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, and that simple description, uh, the these extinction of these is this description of nibbana. If we don't feed the fires of them, they go out like a fire that goes out. They just fall away. So they're conditional. They don't have inherent existence. They're, they require the fuel of unawareness, you could say. These energies that we usually are, talk about as greed, hatred, and delusion are sometimes called the roots of suffering. And the word for that in Pali is kilesa, and it usually is this translated as defilement, which is not a translation that I like because it doesn't sound too good. I'm just a walking lump of defilements. It sounds pretty bad. Right? And I think we have to be careful of, of translating it this way. So it's a catch-all term for the energies of, of greed, hatred, and delusion and all their different manifestations of wanting and craving and aversion and uh, resistance and dullness and slaw and confusion and ignorance and um, restlessness and all these things that show up that manifest as what we call uh, often the hindrances, things that hinder our ability to collect and gather the mind. But I think it's important to remember that these energies are not bad or wrong or evil, and their presence doesn't mean that we are bad or wrong. It doesn't mean that at all. They reflect an attempt to deal with the truth of change, of unreliability, of uncontrollability, these truths of, of um, this, this fragility inherent in, in life. You could say the, the truths of anicca, dukkha, anatta, you know, the Pali words. Change, unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, and, and corelessness or uncontrollability. So they're actually trying to help us. They're not wrong or bad, they just are a little misguided, <laughs> misguided attempts for it to try to help us be okay. So they show up on kind of three levels in our, in our lives. The first level is in terms of our behavior in the world, it's called the level of transgression in one text. And it means when these energies 
when we're acting them out, when they have the upper hand, and we see how this operates in our lives and in the world. And they lead to actions that we do or speech that we use. The second level, sometimes it's called obsessive, and it's where the energies are arising in the mind, they come up. But we're not acting on them. There's enough presence of mind that they so they don't hold sway completely over the mind. We don't hack them out. We see them. And this is mostly where we're, um, where we're, you know, this is where we're working in meditation. And then the third level is called the level of, um, of latent tendencies where they're, they're not arising, but the potential for them to arise is there if the right conditions are there. And an image is used of mud at the bottom of a pond that could get stirred up if the, if there were the right conditions that would, it would come up. So it's not there now, but it could come. So they're in a kind of dormant or inactive, not actively, they're not manifesting. And I had this example of this one time when I was living as a monk in Burma and I was on a long, very long period of retreat. You know, this week feels like a long time to you. But this was a kind of a year-long period of retreat, a little bit longer. And um, I was I was sitting uh, at that time, um, as often is the case for, for me during intensive practice. I was waking up very early, and so I was I was sitting for uh, two or three hours before dawn, before I would go down um, to gather in the at dawn with the rest of the group there, and um, and you know I got pretty things were pretty peaceful. Pretty chilled out and peaceful. Equanimity really strong and just a sense of... There were no um, no obsessive or transgressive chilesas arising and no sign of any latent ones, right? Chilled out and peaceful, calm. And um, at that time, I was living in a little hut, kind of like some of the huts here, very small one. And um, there had been some robberies in the monastery and they, they'd asked us to turn on our outside lights and leave them on at night to try to discourage uh, people from breaking into any of the huts. And, uh, and so we did this, but at that time the power was very inconsistent and it was off more than it was on. So I turned my light on and then at some point went to bed and it was still on. And... The light drew a lot of insects, and the insects drew a lot of these um, little geckos. Do you have geckos? In? Do we have them here? Yeah. Uh, little kind of almost translucent lizards that gravity doesn't seem to apply to them. They walk upside down on the ceiling. So they were having a field day feasting on the bugs and dropping wings and legs and things down on the porch for hours. So there was a collection of bug parts down there. Then, of course, the power goes out, so it's dark. And the ants, which there are lots of, many kinds, there's one particular small ant that, um, they're tiny, but they're a voracious hunter. They'll even take living prey. And um, I saw them, I've seen them reduce a, a lizard to a skeleton in a few minutes. They'll just, completely cover even a living 
beast. And so, so I was, I'm sitting all chilled out and then I, it's time to go and I, I get up and arrange my robes and there's no power. I step out onto my dark porch and immediately the ants, ah, a really big bug. Let's, <laughs> time to kill and eat this one. <laughs> and so my feet, and their bites are really hurt. <laughs> so my feet and lower legs are just covered. It's like, whoa, okay. So some latent um, defilements arose very quickly there. <laughs> so a long uh, story, but, you know, it's good to get a story in there of, of, of this latent tendency, <laughs> you know, where they're, they they will come up given the right conditions. <laughs> you know, I have to, I have to I'm, I'm not harming, right? So I have to try to get the ants off without hurting them. Um, that was a big project, let me tell you. <laughs> so we could see these path factors as addressing these energies um, in, in, um, on these three levels of transgressive, obsessive, latent that I talked about. And this, this the Eightfold Path gets arranged, it arranges itself in a different order, and it's very uh, widely spoken about as the tra- three trainings in Sila, Samadhi, Panya. Um, Jill touched on it in a slightly different way last night, but it's the trainings in ethical conduct, in uh, meditation, concentration and meditation, and in wisdom. And so um, the where we're acting them out, the transgressive level is countered by uh, sila in terms of our conduct with our attention to our speech, our actions, how we make a living. And uh, this is the foundation of our practice, because if we're acting these energies out, if we're acting um, out these transgressive energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, then we can't work with the mind states that give rise to them. We're 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 past that point, and so that commitment to uh, attention to how we live and our conduct lets us meet them on this level where they're arising in the mind but we're not acting out on them. And this is what we're doing in meditation. We, we meet these things with the factors of, of our effort and our mindfulness and our concentration. And so we see them um, and, and we, we meet them in the mind and sit with them and get to know them without having to act on them, without trying to avoid feeling them. And we start to see that we actually can be with them. And if we, are willing to sit with them, we'll see that they arise out of conditions and pass away when those conditions change and that they're they're um, impermanent, that they're conditioned, and, and they start to, the grip on our mind starts to naturally loosen and fall away. They unbind and then that relaxes by itself. And with these meditative tools of our energy and concentration and mindfulness woven together and and the steady, gentle application of these, the mind can um, reach a certain level of, of uh, purity at times, you could say, where um, the steadiness, the non-distraction can um, uh, bring the mind to a, a unification where there's no space for these energies of the kilesas or the hindrances, they can't arise. There's, they're held at bay by the strength of the unification of our mind. And it can be very peaceful. Sometimes it's called the bliss of seclusion. And it may be short 
periods of this, but sometimes some these things are not always there. They don't always arise. But they will come back because they're they're held at bay temporarily by those conditions, and when the conditions change, they may come back, like me with my ants. I think of them as my ants, and I'm fond of them in a way. And so it's not something wrong or sign of failure when they come back. It's just that they're they're not uprooted or rendered powerless. They're they're in that latent state, and so that's addressed by. Um, by the wisdom group, which can uproot them. We see through them, we understand them. Their wisdom is what uproots their power. And not not because we analyze it and figure it out and make a decision. It's a direct, intuitive kind of wisdom. It's a different kind of wisdom. Try to wrap this up. So this this is the level of real insight, this level of, of wisdom um, that that sees deeply into um, kind of three fundamental delusions. The, the delusion that takes that which is not permanent to be permanent, that takes that which is not a reliable source of happiness as being capable of providing that, and taking that which we think of as a, a, a solid, ongoing self, the way we take ownership of our experience, we see that that's not what we think it is. And so through meditation and this stability of mind that can eventually grow strong enough, we start to see, for example, the truth of change in a profound and really transformative way where we see things are changing actually much more rapidly than usually meets our eye, and that we see there's nothing in there that we can actually hold on to. We can't hold on to it as a source of lasting happiness, so we stop trying to do that. So that's seeing the truth of change and the truth of this unreliability. And I use the word seeing guardedly. It's a direct experience, a direct knowing, not something we just figure out. So we see that we can't hold on to anything. It's like holding on to moving water or sand. It just slips through our fingers, so we stop trying. We come into harmony with the fact that it's changing. And we see into what we could think of as the most maybe fundamental level of of confusion or delusion, which is, is taking that which we think of as a self we, we we see that it's not what we think it is. And this is a, a radical understanding, maybe the most potentially most freeing understanding of the Buddha. And we well basically in short we see that our experience is a flow of natural processes that's happening by itself, causes and effects, and that they're unfolding according to nature. And it's a process that's happening by itself, that there's no one behind it who's in charge of it or controlling it, or no one to whom it's happening. That what we, um, that it's our relationship with that, it's identification with some aspect of that, that gives rise to the feeling of I am, or this is mine, 
or this is happening to me, that what we call a self and think of as this abiding entity with ongoing existence is actually just this process. And, and this, it's a, there's this feeling that arises in relation to some aspect of the flow of experience that, that we call a self that's born of how we're relating to that. And as we start to see this on deeper and deeper levels, it inclines the mind and the heart to let go. And we start, we let things arise and cease according to their nature because they're going to do it anyway. And, and this non-attachment, this letting go, we put it down. We give it back to nature. We give back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. We let it go. And it doesn't mean we dissolve or go away. And it doesn't mean the world of change dissolves or go away. It goes away. But how we live is transformed. So I'll end with uh, a few more words from the nun Mei Gao, a beautiful way of putting things. In a perfectly still, crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily and fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.